I'm a drought scientist. I study drought on a range of timescales from the last millennium through to the present day and out to the end of the 21st century. And I'm going to talk a lot about that today with the added kind of wrinkle of trying to talk about some of these major drought events and major hydroclimatic variations in the Eastern Mediterranean that seem to coincide with major historical events in basically the history of humanity. Uh, I'm not an anthropologist or an archaeologist. I'm not a historian. Um, and so really everything I'm presenting, they're hypotheses, right? You know, we know that the kind of connections between the physical world and human societal responses is oftentimes very uh, fuzzy. It's not very deterministic and it can depend on a variety of things. Um, so, I mean, which is all just to say that feel free to completely disagree with uh, all of my uh, interpretations. Um, regardless though, that we know that droughts do have a big impact. Droughts are one of the most impactful one of the most costly natural disasters in the world today. Uh, even in my home country, the US, which by all accounts is one of the richest, um, somewhat politically stable countries in the world, uh, this is, uh, drought events are the single largest or most expensive natural disaster, with events like the recent California drought costing um, you know, upwards of over a billion dollars in both lost revenue um, and aid payments that, that had to be made. Um, we can see other areas of the world that are also dealing with droughts and, uh, and droughts that have much more severe impacts, such as the most recent drought in Syria, uh, the ongoing drought in East Africa that's contributing to a famine in that region, um, and throughout other regions as well. Um, but we can also look back in, in time, uh, and we can find periods in human history where it looks like major droughts had some kind of effect or impact on the people living there at the time. Again. These are hypotheses. We're dealing with kind of fragmentary paleoclimate records, and we're also dealing with fragmentary archaeological records that tell us about the response. Um, but what I'm going to do today is try to tell somewhat of a story of, in this particular region, the Eastern Mediterranean, some of the most, uh, the impacts of hydroclimate variations on some of the, you know, what I, what I think are some of the most, or the largest kind of things that have happened in the history of humanity. Uh, and really, Eastern Mediterranean is a place where we can kind of do this because, you know, to a large degree, you know, this is kind of where the kind of global human story uh, kind of starts. Before we kind of get into that, though, I think it's worthwhile taking some time to just kind of talk about why hydroclimate variability, why drought, why water resources are such a big concern for people in some place like the Eastern Mediterranean. And a lot of it has to do with the climate in this particular region. Uh, what you're looking at right here is just a, what's called a climograph for Jerusalem. All right, so right in the Levant. Uh, and what you're looking at is average, long-term average monthly precipitation, rainfall effectively in the gray bars, and average maximum and minimum temperatures. And so what you can see is that uh, this is kind of a very classic Mediterranean climate with a kind of winter, uh, winter wet season when most of the precipitation comes and an extended four month uh, dry season and during the summertime when effectively there's zero uh, precipitation in an average year. Um, so what this means is that even in the best of years, uh, places like Jerusalem and other areas within the Eastern Mediterranean experiencing this Mediterranean climate have to deal with an extended period of, or extended dry season, okay, even in a normal year. Uh, that's coupled with the fact that this dry season also occurs during the season of greatest water demand. Okay, and a lot of that, again, is climate related because during the summertime, you have the warmest temperatures, you have the greatest evaporative demand from the atmosphere, uh, and so uh, it can put a lot of stress on water resources that uh, basically cannot be replenished until potentially the following winter season. Beyond this kind of seasonal aspect to the climate in this particular region, uh, the Eastern Mediterranean and the kind of larger Middle East, Northern Africa region is also just one of the driest regions that we see in the globe. So this is one kind of way that we can measure this called the aridity index, which is just the ratio of precipitation, so rain plus snow, divided by this thing called potential evapotranspiration, or PET. And all PET is is basically an estimate of the moisture demand from the atmosphere. Okay. Uh, and it's strongly controlled by temperature. So basically, probably unsurprisingly, uh, we find typically the most arid regions in places with the least amount of precipitation and the warmest temperatures. And one area that really fits with that is the Eastern Mediterranean and the larger MENA region that I've kind of outlined right here. 
Uh, in fact, you can see that most of this region uh, is semi-arid or drier, except for some fringe areas of, of Anatolia. So in addition to experiencing every year a long-term dry season, right, when uh, these areas are going to have to just make do with whatever water or moisture we have, they have available, we're also in an area that just on average is, is dry. What this means then is that when you kind of add people into the equation, this is one of the most water-stressed regions in the world. And one of the ways that we can measure water stress is through uh, this particular metric, which is basically just the ratio of withdrawals, how much water people are kind of taking out of reservoirs and trying to use, to the amount of renewable supply. So the average amount of water available uh, every single year. Uh, and you can see that these stress levels go from low stress, where uh, less than 10% of uh, the renewable supply is withdrawn every year for human use and consumption to upwards of over 80%. Uh, and fitting with the just climatically dry nature of this region, you can see that most of the MENA region here really is uh, high or extremely high stress, where 40 to 80 and even in excess of 80 of the uh, renewable water supply is withdrawn every single year. Now the key here is that this is just the average, okay? So when you have a drought year, in these extremely stressed regions, it means that in fact your withdrawals or your demands or your needs are oftentimes going to exceed the renewable supply of moisture, right? You're gonna need more water for irrigation, for municipal supplies than you have available in the renewable water system that in, in this particular region. And so what this means is then you have to make choices, right? So you can either uh, irrigate less or uh, let crops fallow or uh, put in measures to conserve water Okay, but, uh, or tap uh, things like groundwater, okay, sources of water that are not renewable, but represent some kind of fossil, uh, fossil water. Um, but the point is that you have to do something, and this particular region is one of these areas where when a drought does occur, uh, it is a problem because uh, you do have to deal with uh, demands really exceeding the, uh, the supplies available. Now, if we're interested in recent drought events, okay, and recent variability, we can, of course, use uh, instrumental measurements of temperature and rainfall and snow and, and all those sorts of things. But if we want to go back further back in time and study climate during some of the kind of longer term historical events that I'm going to talk about today, we obviously don't have observations for those time periods. And so we're forced to use what we call paleoclimate archives. Uh, and I'm just showing a few here that are um, uh, commonly used in this particular region. So all a paleoclimate archive is is simply a geological or a biological archive that we can use and study to infer something about climate variability in the past. Okay. Uh, some good examples, for example, are uh, sediments in uh, coastal regions um, in the ocean or in lakes, uh, stalagmites or stalactites, speleothems in caves. We can study that isotopic composition. Um, coral reefs as well, there's a couple uh, around the MENA region um, that are useful. Uh, and the proxy that I mostly work with, which are tree rings right here. So you can look at the kind of growth bands of trees to infer something about how wet or dry it was in a given year. Now, uh, these are not kind of perfect recorders, all right? And they don't even all record the same part of the hydrological cycle. So there's always some bit of kind of almost artistic interpretation in, in a lot of these, uh, these particular records. Uh, but if we want to know something about the climate system before the instrumental era, before the last 200 years, these are the records that we have to work with, and these are what we have to, what we have to look at. Uh, and it turns out, at least within this particular region, that there's enough of these where we can start to get at least some idea of some of the big climate variations that we've seen over the last, uh, in some cases, several hundred thousand years. Now, the particular event that I first want to start off with really goes back to the beginning, uh, and it's related to the migration of modern humans out of Africa. Okay. So Homo sapiens, uh, of course, evolved in Africa, uh, and they kind of uh, left in about, about 50 to 60,000 years ago, uh, first settling in the Eastern Mediterranean in the Fertile Crescent, before spreading out around uh, pretty much the entire world, uh, reaching as uh, North America where I live by about 13,000 years ago. Now, there's been a lot of kind of debate and discussion about why these uh, early anatomical uh, humans would have actually left Africa. And that can be kind of divvied up into kind of two hypotheses that are referred to as push and pull. 
So again, most of North Africa, a lot of East Africa and the MENA region tend to be a moisture kind of stressed area. Okay, some places you have savannas, um, but you also have desert regions. And so you have limited moisture availability, and so productivity of the landscape is often, um, is often limited. And there have been two hypotheses for why people may have uh, left Africa uh, and moved into the Fertile Crescent uh, and the MENA region. Uh, push the idea that, well, maybe climate in this region degraded. Maybe there was a big drought, moisture became limiting, landscape productivity uh, was really diminished, and people couldn't survive uh, on the landscape as they had before. And so because of this, these populations moved out of Africa to try to find uh, more food and, and, and a more stable environment. The alternative hypothesis is called pull, which is basically the idea that, well, maybe in fact, this time period was really good here. Um, we know that North Africa and this region at various times in the past were really quite a bit wetter. Okay, we know that, for example, the Sahara Desert uh, at many intervals in the past was not actually a desert, but was actually a savanna uh, ecosystem that was really quite productive and supportive of, of human and animal communities in there. And so maybe it was more of a pull where the climate was so good that these populations were able to spread, follow these green corridors, and, uh, and, and settle into new areas. Now, I think uh, what I'm going to show is one new paleoclimate record that came out from a colleague of mine a couple years ago, Jess Tierney, which I think actually provides some support for maybe both of these hypotheses. And this is a sediment core from the Gulf of Aden over here. That's a measure of uh, isotopes composition in, in leaf, leaf waxes. So I'm going to be showing a lot of graphs, but I'll kind of explain them all because they can be a little bit of, of information overload in places. But uh, basically what you're looking at here is a time series of this leaf wax isotopic composition. Okay? Basically up means wetter conditions. Okay, down means drier conditions. Uh, and at the bottom on the X here, we're looking at time, starting from today, going back about 140,000 years ago. And this particular record is a very good indication for basically stream flow and runoff uh, in East Africa that was basically washing all of these leaf waxes into, into the Gulf before settling in the sediment, um, getting buried, before getting extracted by um, Jess and, and various colleagues. Now, uh, we can kind of look in, we can see periods here where it was drier, where it was wetter, uh, and we can compare against periods of human activity um, and see whether the push or the pull hypothesis kind of fits more or, or less. Now, it turns out that the first early human fossils uh, in the Levant region were not found during this major exodus period about 50 to 70,000 years ago, but actually more about 100,000 years ago. Uh, and these were anatomically modern humans but it looks unlikely that they were able to establish kind of permanent populations out of, outside of Africa. Um, the main kind of pulse actually happened during uh, this period here, about 50 to 70,000 years ago. And here we see kind of two very different climate kind of states. So during this kind of initial uh, foray by, by humans out of Africa, you can see that it actually was quite wet um, about 100,000 years ago. And so this would seem to at least support, in part, this kind of pull hypothesis that maybe these much wetter conditions or relatively wet conditions in the, in the region, you know, provided kind of corridors, productive corridors that these humans could travel, uh, survive on, and kind of um, eventually settle in the Levant region. Uh, these kind of fossils disappear about 90,000 years ago. And then the next fossils outside of Africa really recorded sometime, happening sometime during this 50 to 70,000 year period. And here we see a very different signal in this particular record, which is this major multi-centennial, multi-millennium uh, period of much, much drier conditions. And so this at least suggests that the major exodus of humans from Africa into the Middle East uh, coincided with the, uh, a really, really significantly dry period, which seems to support this kind of push hypothesis. And that's a, a dry period right there. Now, uh, that's maybe the kind of first kind of major, at least global event, I think, in kind of human history, at least from my very uninformed climate scientist perspective. And the other one that I thought was kind of particularly interesting was the Neolithic Revolution or the development of agriculture. And here again, there's at least some evidence that uh, this transition from hunter-gatherer societies to agricultural societies uh, could have been stimulated or at least affected by uh, climate change and climate variability at the time. 
right? So the uh, kind of Fertile Crescent here and the Levant region are the place where the, we see the kind of first, and the first evidence for agriculture um, and sedentary kind of um, uh, populations of humans um, and eventually the kind of development of much more complex stratified societies compared to kind of hunter-gatherers. Uh, and this actually was a very kind of interesting particular time period from a climate perspective um, because it was a time period of significant warming out of the last peak glacial period um, that was interrupted by a major uh, particular cold event. So here we're looking at actually an ice core in Greenland, all right, and we're recording kind of temperatures. Uh, here we're looking at 18,000 years ago to today, all right, I know the direction has switched, Paleoclimatologists can never seem to agree on where the past should be relative to the future. Um, and on the y-axis here is uh, uh, temperature reconstruction from this ice core in Greenland with cold down here and, and warm up here. Uh, and we can see a, several kind of interesting features as we move from about 18,000 years ago uh, to today. So the first thing we see is this uh, long and pretty strong warming trend from about 18,000 years ago to about maybe nine or, or 8,000 years ago. Um, and this record kind of you know, largely reflects what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere, including some place like the Levant period. So basically a kind of long-term trend that's a kind of continuation of this warming as those ice sheets recede and as we start to move into a interglacial period um, uh, from the last ice age. Uh, what we also see is this kind of interruption of the warming. Uh, it's oftentimes referred to as the Younger Dryas. Um, a roughly thousand-year-long period of uh, relatively cold conditions, in some, in place, some places very, very severe cold conditions, that interrupted this long-term warming trend um, uh, before things kind of resumed uh, this particular warming. And this younger dryest and this long-term warming itself also seemed to coincide with uh, aspects of agriculture in the region. Uh, and it could be because this particular period was also associated with really dry conditions in much of the eastern Mediterranean and Levant. And so if we go from Greenland to the Levant and we look at a variety of different records in this particular region, we can see that at least in some areas, uh, this uh, younger driest period shown here in the gray really was associated with uh, an abrupt, uh, significant and persistent dry period in the region. Um, so again, we're, we're starting from 20,000 years here, we're moving towards the future or, or to, towards the present. Uh, and here I've just kind of highlighted a few of the records that suggest that at least parts of the Eastern Mediterranean really were quite dry during this event. So, you know, here's a, uh, here's a lake record from central Turkey, and you can see this big drop indicating a drying, okay? Uh, here too in Israel, uh, a big drop as well. Uh, and you could even argue that there's some kind of drying here in, in this record from southern Turkey as well. Of course, what you can also see is that the, the picture is complex. And so even in, in terms of the kind of paleo data that we have that's much more quantifiable than a lot of the archaeology uh, that we have from the region, uh, there's still a lot of complexity that needs to be interpreted and, and, and kind of understood. But at least there's some evidence that during this Younger Dryas period, which was cold across the Northern Hemisphere, the Eastern Mediterranean and Levant also was really quite a bit drier than it was previously. Right. Um, so the argument that's basically made um, and there's at least some evidence from it, um, shown here from a particular archaeological site uh, on the Euphrates in Syria, uh, is this kind of transient cooling and then resumption of warming coincides with the exploitation and the, um, the cultivation of different types of, um, uh, of cereals in the region. So uh, again, just to orient ourselves, here we're just looking at some more of those temperature records just for reference. We're going from uh, the 13,500 years ago to about 9,500 years ago here, and we're going from cool to warm in this direction. And then right here is just showing um, kind of archaeobotanical estimates of different species of cereal um, at this particular archaeological site. And so what you can see is that during this uh, particular cold period in the early Holocene, which is, uh, you know, both before and during these younger Dryas, uh, at this particular site, it looks like most of the, um, most of the exploitation was these kind of uh, maybe dry adapted, um, cold adapted species like rye or two-grained icorn. 
evidence too that the cultivation and gathering may have happened on, uh, uh, on floodplains, areas that maybe would have been a little bit wetter even during this relatively dry interval. And then you see this transition to the much warmer period afterwards, oops, um, uh, where you see a large-scale shift at this particular site uh, from rye uh, and two-grain icorn to barley, emmer, and, and some other species as well. Um, again, you know, all of these kind of are just hypotheses and, and speculation, but there's at least some coincidence between many of these events and, and the climate system. Now, one of the most kind of famous just-so stories that's often told about climate and people in the region is the collapse of the Akkadian Empire. Uh, so this is uh, an empire that lasted almost 200 years, founded by Sargon, who effectively united a bunch of different independent city-states throughout the Middle East uh, and the, um, the, the Fertile Crescent. Uh, it was kind of the first, it's considered kind of one of the first true uh, empires um, with kind of uh, centralized governance, large urban centers with in some places over 50,000 people, and it spread over a very, very large region, um, about 800,000 square kilometers. All right. If you look at a map, um, the empire itself is kind of covered by this brown area right here, and it had kind of extensive political influ influence uh, beyond this region into the eastern Mediterranean uh, and into other areas as well. The empire itself lasted about 180 years before it more or less abruptly collapsed. And here by collapse, we don't necessarily mean the kind of complete die-off of everybody who lived in this region, but much more likely a transition from this kind of central empire state authority to back to kind of more independently governed uh, city-states. Uh, and uh, there's been a lot of people who have tried to speculate about this, um, and people like Harvey Weiss at Yale University kind of make the argument that uh, this could have been caused by um, a drought event that I'm going to talk about in the next slide that negatively impacted the agriculture. Uh, so across the uh, uh, kind of region of the Akkadian Empire, uh, agriculture was a little bit different. Um, so these are different sites down here. This is from a, a Yale uh, project on the Akkadian Empire. And the red areas here are areas where uh, uh, agriculture was irrigated, uh, I believe on floodplains. Uh, but in the northern part of the empire, it was mostly dry farming. Uh, and the argument is that the food produced in the northern part of the empire um, supplied a lot of the food that fed the army and kept many uh, people happy, and that there was a major drought event that may have uh, significantly impacted uh, the agricultural capacity in this particular region, uh, driving some, uh, uh, some problems um, that eventually led to the kind of dissolution of the empire itself. And indeed, there is some uh, evidence for a major event at the time. Uh, and in climate circles, this is called the 4.2K event. This is relatively controversial, but it does show up in a variety of different locations around the world. Uh, here, we're looking at a map of the Eastern Hemisphere. Uh, each one of these sites is a location with a record from the 4.2K time period. And any place that's in red here is a period that recorded exceptionally dry conditions during this particular event. Um, and what you can see is that across the Mediterranean, into, um, uh, Eastern into uh, Northeast Africa, the MENA region, and even to Asia, you can see that uh, this event pops up again and again as a particularly dry event. Uh, the general hypothesis is that it may have been driven by Atlantic uh, circu ocean circulation changes. Um, and again, people have tried to attribute this particular event to uh, disruptions in the uh, Old Kingdom Egypt, Longshan in China, the Indus Valley, and, and also the Akkadian Empire. Um, but we can look specifically in this particular region and see kind of what this event actually looks like in the more local paleoclimate records. So this is from a, a recent review paper, and uh, everything you're looking at here is basically uh, our different records of moisture variability from across the eastern Mediterranean, uh, from Italy up here, uh, Albania, Montenegro, Greece, um, and here just kind of more broadly across the eastern Mediterranean. All right, down means dry, up means wet. And here we're starting at 6,000 years ago and coming through to today. And you can see that in a lot of these records, uh, this abrupt dry period associated with the 4.2K event again uh, shows up. But again, as previously, it's much more complicated than simply this uniform, homogeneous drought that happens the same everywhere at the same time. Right? So you can see, you can compare, for example, here at this particular location in Albania, 
that the 4.2K event actually starts a bit wet and then gets uh, dry for a relatively short time period, whereas here in Italy it's a, recorded a much uh, longer, much more persistent dry period as, uh, as well. Um, there's at least some arguments that have been made that uh, these kind of changes associated with the 4.2K event may have meant as much as a 30 to 50% drop in average precipitation for the Eastern Mediterranean. Um, and from a societal perspective, this is pretty significant. Even today, a 10% drop in precipitation is considered a pretty major drought in many areas, at least in the United States. And so a 30 to 50% drop could be um, almost catastrophic. Um, the time period that I work much more in is actually the last 2,000 years, right? And here things aren't quite so dramatic. So if we go back much further in time, there's much bigger forcings, much bigger changes in the climate system that can cause kind of local, regional scale changes in, in weather and climate. Uh, if we look over the last 1,000 years, the forcing changes until we get to the most recent period with greenhouse gas warming are much more subtle. Uh, and so what we see is really the domination of natural modes of climate variability, like the North Atlantic Oscillation and, and, and other things. The one thing that does come out that's particularly interesting, though, for the Eastern Mediterranean is the evidence that, uh, at least in a lot of areas, uh, evidenced here by two uh, core from central Turkey and northern Iraq, is that on top of this long-term variability, there's been a long-term desiccating or long-term drying trend over the last 100 years. Um, and so, uh, you know, the degree to which this is forced or what the cause of this long-term change, uh, I think is a little bit uncertain um, and, and might need a little bit more work. But within these records, we can see these time periods of pretty significant drought. Uh, and again, we can kind of look back at archeological and historical records and ask if there's some association between people and some of these big events in the region. Um, and I'm gonna talk about kind of two that I think kind of pop out um, over this period. You know, and maybe not uh, quite as dramatic as the 4.2K event, but uh, at least there's still some evidence for a, a connection. Uh, the first is this uh, Mamluk period, uh, which is a, uh, a large state that was established uh, by slave soldiers in the Egy Egypt and Levant, and that lasted until the Ottoman conquest of uh, Egypt in, in 1517. Um, and associated with this particular expansion was the uh, intensification of irrigated agriculture in a lot of places, including the Jordan Valley. Uh, and so we can use some of these climate records and ask, well, you know, was this a particularly wet period that the Mamluks kind of established in? You know, would that have helped kind of facilitate the kind of consolidation and, and, and the development by enabling them to grow uh, more food and, and be, more, be more productive? Uh, and there's at least limited evidence for this. So this is uh, a Turing-based reconstruction of basically soil moisture, right? So wet here, dry here. And here it's just a long-term average over about uh, 50 years during, or not 50 years, several hundred years during the Mamluk period. Uh, but what you can see is that there's a bit of a strip of, uh, of blue here, wet here, during, the, um, uh, during the, this particular period in uh, the kind of Jordan Valley in the center of where a lot of the agriculture would have been at the time. And while this blue here might seem terribly uh, strong, what it does represent is a several hundred year kind of shift towards relatively wetter conditions um, that just may have made agriculture uh, a little bit easier and, and, and a little bit more uh, productive. The other major event that we see in the kind of recent historical period that may have also been tied um, to drought uh, and to climate uh, variability. And in fact, in this case, I think the, the argument is a little bit stronger, is this, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but the Salali Rebellion uh, in the late 1500s, early 600, 1600s. This is a major political economic crisis uh, in the Ottoman Empire. Um, the rebellion itself was centered mostly in Anatolia. And this whole period, we know from historical records that there were major harvest failures, famines, uh, diseases, uh, both uh, for people and for the livestock at the time. And in some cases, there was a 50% population loss um, associated with these particular events. Uh, at the time, the, there were kind of also strong imperial demands for sheep from farmers. And it's thought that this may have helped trigger this rebellion of um, basically local governors and local warlords against the kind of centralized authority. Uh, with the goal not necessarily of kind of 
trying to break apart the Ottoman Empire, but just to have maybe a little bit more autonomy or in some cases to gain a little bit more regional political, uh, uh, regional political power. Uh, the historical documents seem to suggest that this particular period was relatively cold and relatively dry, and this may have contributed to things like the harvest failures and the subsequent famines and, and maybe the disease. And again, we can use the paleoclimate record to provide, if possible, some kind of independent verification of this. Uh, and indeed, we see that this particular time period does appear relatively dry compared to um, uh, periods before. So here we're looking at two different reconstructions, one of precipitation, uh, and it's uh, average for the 1580 to 1610 period. Again, brown here means drier than average, blue means wetter than average. And we see in both of these independent reconstructions, this one based mostly on trees, this one I think mostly from some trees, but also mostly historical documents. Uh, we can see that indeed over much of Anatolia, this 30-year period was on average drier. Um, and so it kind of fits within at least the kind of narrative that, you know, as developed in some quarters, that uh, this kind of period of relatively dry, cold conditions was at least some kind of disruption that, that may have contributed to these, these rebellions. Uh, indeed, we can even look in these particular, uh, look at particular years during this time period and find, uh, in fact, that uh, in addition to be on average drier, there's some major uh, widespread, really intense drought events throughout this region. Um, so here we're just averaging that, uh, that tree-ring-based soil moisture reconstruction for the region for some of the major kind of drought years that are mentioned in historical documents. Uh, one, 1570, before the main rebellion period, but everything else uh, from the mid-1590s mid uh, into the early 1600s, all, from, uh, all during this particular period. And if you generate that composite map, you get a picture that looks like this, with really intense, uh, widespread drought that pretty much covered all of Anatolia uh, into Greece and even um, a bit into kind of Eastern Europe uh, above right there. Um, and so in addition to being kind of on average drier, there were these repeated kind of very significant events that were very, very spatially widespread uh, with an actual spatial pattern that um, looks a lot like the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is the main mode of circulation that kind of moves moisture around in this region. Okay, this kind of dipole, kind of anti-phasing where it's wet down here in the Levant and kind of dry up here uh, is a very kind of characteristic uh, uh, pattern associated with uh, variability in the region. Now, the last bit I kind of want to talk about today is to go from the past to a little bit more of the modern day and into the future uh, and talk about a very controversial topic, which is the, the recent Syria drought and, and, and the Civil War. Um, I can't really speak, you know, obviously to the kind of social impacts. We know that this Drought had a big impact on agriculture and people in the region. All right, it led to the internal displacement of about 1.5 million people. It all kind of happened right before the start of the Civil War. Um, but we can at least look at this particular drought and we can ask, well, what kind of impact can we quantify? Does it look like there was a climate change part of this particular drought? Uh, and what does this mean for the kind of future of the particular region? Um, and I think at the end of the day, whether you think this drought is connected to the Civil War or not, uh, it's hard to basically uh, dismiss the actual impact of this drought on, uh, on the ecosystems and the people of this particular region. Uh, this is one of the worst years of the drought, uh, and what we're actually looking at here is satellite uh, estimates of vegetation health from uh, NASA satellites for April 2008. And what you see is this big brown swath across the Fertile Crescent from northern Syria here into, um, into Iraq and, 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 and elsewhere. You know, with vegetation anomalies of about minus, in some places, minus 100%. Basically, where on average there is vegetation activity, basically there's nothing growing during this particular time period. This is important from an impacts perspective because this particular region of northern Syria is where a lot of the wheat gets produced. And this, is, of course, supplies a lot of the food for uh, people in this particular region. Uh, and what you're seeing here is that, you know, uh, the impact on the vegetation and the crops in this region is, is severe. And you see this in uh, wheat production records that are available. Um, so here we're looking at Syria wheat production um, uh, put together by the USDA. Uh, and you can see that during drought events in the past, you see this big kind of spike downwards, uh, a big kind of increase in productivity in the late 90s. Uh, but you can still see the impact of these droughts during different two-year, uh, during different, different major drought periods. Uh, here's 2007-2008, which again was the kind of major drought year 
kind of before the Civil War, and you're looking at basically a 40 to 50% decline in uh, production relative to uh, the, uh, uh, the, the most recent years. Okay. To kind of put this in a little perspective, in the US, uh, one of our most worst recent droughts in 2012 had a very severe impact, um, but in that case, it was only about a 10% to 15% decline. Um, so the impacts here were really quite large. Now, uh, what caused this? Well, uh, certainly it was caused by a period of below average precipitation. So here we're looking at instrumental observations, all right, November to April precipitation here on the y-axis, time from 1900 to the present day right here. And here are the kind of uh, three of the most kind of severe drought years um, in the record, all right? Uh, in addition, what you can see is that the long-term precipitation in this region is also declining on average, okay? There's been about a 13% reduction in average precipitation over the course uh, of basically the last 70 to, um, to 80 years. Uh, and so one question that pops up a lot is, well, is this trend climate change? And did it contribute to the major drought that we see at the end of this particular record associated with the, um, uh, the Syrian conflict? Um, so to kind of answer this question, the first thing we need to, add, to, to do is to generate a kind of picture for what we think climate change should do in this region. And for this, we can go to basically climate models, so these computer programs that can basically uh, you know, tell us things about the climate system in response to different forcings. And so what we're looking at here is basically an average of a bunch of these different models for the end of the 21st century under a high greenhouse gas emissions, high warming scenario. Okay. And we're looking at a lot of uh, four different drought metrics here, and we're asking simply, if we continue our emissions and warming out to the end of the 21st century, uh, where is it going to get drier and where is it going to get wet? Right. And here we're looking at precipitation, we're looking at runoff or stream flow, we're looking at soil moisture in the top 30 centimeters, which is probably most important for agriculture. And here we're looking at soil moisture from the surface down to several meters. Okay. So a complicated picture that in, and any kind of conclusion that you might make depends upon the metric that you're looking at, the region that you're looking at. But if we actually zoom in on the Mediterranean um, region, uh, this is one area where we actually do see a very robust response, uh, and that is drying. Regardless of what metric that we look at in our models, what you see is that a warmer world means a drier future in the Mediterranean uh, from the west to the east. And that includes precipitation, uh, runoff to a large degree, uh, and also uh, soil moisture over this area. So it turns out that you can actually take this information and you can basically use it to subtract out a climate change signal from something like the observed temperature record or the observed precipitation record. And so then you can kind of ask, like, well, what does the actual precipitation trend look like, and what would that trend look like without climate change? And the answer is that uh, you'd still have a drought, but it wouldn't be anywhere near as dry in the recent years uh, if climate change had not been a factor, um, uh, or uh, if warming had not been happening over the last century. Uh, and that's kind of shown right here, where the blue here is that kind of observed precipitation, again, over this period from the 1930s to the present day. And then the purple here is basically what the precipitation would be without the influence of climate change over this period. Okay. And you can see right here that with climate change, uh, those drought anomalies are really quite a bit more severe than they would be otherwise. Uh, this translates to basically an increase in the likelihood of the, severe, of the severe drought that was experienced in this region by about two to three uh, times compared to a world with natural variability. Uh, but there's also support for this hypothesis in the actual paleoclimate record itself. So uh, from the tree rings, we can look over this region and we can generate a time series of soil moisture variability going back in this particular region about to about 1400 with kind of relatively high confidence. Again, this is just a, a standardized soil moisture index, so positive values indicate wet, negative values indicate dry. And here we're going from 1400, in this case, to about 2010. All right. um, and so a few things kind of pop out uh, right away if you compare the most recent drought period in this region to the kind of full spectrum of variability over the last 600 years. All right. So the first we can see is that over the last 20th century, uh, you see this drying trend in soil moisture that shows up in the trees that's completely congruent with what we see in observations of precipitation. So we're getting kind of independent verification 
uh, that this long-term centennial scale drying trend that previously we've associated with climate change seems to be a robust feature of what's happening with hydrology in the region. The second thing we see is that in this record, uh, 2000, okay, which was a really major drought event in this area, turns out to be the single driest year in the entire record going back to uh, about 1400. Um, and then finally, you can actually analyze this 15-year kind of period of dryness right here, and you can compare it to all other kind of similar periods in the, in the record back to about, uh, you know, including this dry period here in the early 1500s. And basically, you can ask, well, is this period the driest such period of, of any time period in the last uh, 600 years? Um, and I won't go into the kind of boring details, but part of our... Uh, paper and JJR Atmospheres did the kind of statistics and analysis here. And we could say that it was uh, um, very likely higher than 90% chance that this particular period of drought right here really was, uh, really is the most severe 15-year period of drought of the last 600 years. Okay. Which again is just a kind of another little piece that at least supports the idea that climate change is making things on average uh, dry in this particular region um, and kind of amplifying uh, the, the, the um, uh, drought in, uh, that, that we're seeing. Now, the final thing I want to I kind of like touch on is, you know, kind of get back to something I said before, which is, you know, I'm a climatologist, so any kind of connections I'm trying to make to kind of human behavior or human impacts tends to be kind of fuzzy. And the reason for this is that any kind of impact of climate change really depends upon social and societal structures. Um, and I think this is really well demonstrated with this particular diagram that was put together by um, uh, some nonprofit, I forget the name. Um, but basically the idea of trying to understand kind of conflict, migration, and kind of environmental um, uh, factors. And the key point is simply that any kind of climate impacts that we see are gonna be filtered through the political and social or cultural institutions. Uh, and whereas drought can be a hazard, drought never becomes a disaster unless there's an inadequate societal response. Um, and you can see this in a variety of different examples. I mean, a good example from the history of the United States is the Dust Bowl drought of the 1930s versus uh, a similar drought that happened in the 1950s. The Dust Bowl drought was probably the single worst natural disaster in the history of the United States. It led to massive farm failures, widespread migration, um, major damage to the landscape. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that there was no coherent kind of social support or societal response. The 1950s drought happened 20 years later, and because there was so much more resilience infrastructure built in, uh, and while the drought had a big impact, uh, it, didn't have, it wasn't anywhere near the same disaster um, as the Dust Bowl itself. You know, you can also compare in the modern day, droughts in East Africa versus droughts in California. In both cases, these droughts, in terms of absolute kind of physical kind of, you know, impacts and changes in the hydrologic cycle are are about the same, um, but the actual impact in East Africa on people um, is much, much more severe than in California. And a lot of that has to do with the kind of political context um, in those particular regions that can help or not help people deal with the, the impacts of these events. Um, so I guess I'll just end with a kind of a bit of a summary slide uh, and I'll thank you for your time. Oh, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, climate change doesn't mean that, that natural variability doesn't matter, right? And I think we can kind of see that here, right? Like, even if you're on average drying, like, and you believe that this is climate change, you could still get very, very big wet years. Um, you know, so, uh, it's, and it's the same thing in the U.S., but anyway, good to know.
totally over. And parts of uh, southern Iraq uh, flooded. But I think it's something like 17 out of 27 or 25 uh, counties of Iran were also suffered from flooding. Whereas only a few years ago we had drought in that part, the very north of Iraqi Kurdistan. Uh, so that's as, as well information uh, for, for, the, for you on the floor. And personally, uh, I've worked, I'm doing a study, individual one, and I'm calling it Mesopotamia, formulation of the sustainability of its natural resources. And I'm interested in that, not just floods and floods, but also the ability of fresh water, one of the factors for the problems we are experiencing in mentioned Syria and Iraq, or what's supposed to be called the fertile casting, which is no more fertile, not because of so much because of the weather and the climate change, but because of the political situation. Uh, so that's just uh, information, and uh, I'd like your comment, uh, and I'd like to meet you afterwards and discuss it further. Thank you. Yeah. Hi, um, I was actually curious about your last slide, so um, which you talk about uh, resilience. Yes. Um, lots of opportunity for resilience. Do you have any um, ideas? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, most of what I do is in the United States, um, and, you know, this year, I guess, like the Eastern Mediterranean, was one of the wettest years of the last several decades. Um, but prior to that, there have been major drought events in California um, and then the Southwest that have had impacts. And, you know, by necessity, there's have to be some kind of innovations to kind of deal with that. Um, you know, the biggest, the biggest sticking point is always agriculture. You know, in all these regions, including the U.S., 70 to 80 percent of the water that's used is, you know, is all used for agriculture. Um, so, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest challenge. As far as muni municipal kind of needs, you know, water recycling, um, uh, even increases in efficiency uh, for a lot of these areas, at least in the U.S., like, have been able to make up a lot of the kind of lost ground and, and have kind of built a lot of, a lot of resilience. Um, you know, agriculture is going to be a little bit more difficult. Um, but I think there's potential to, sh you know, you can shift from, certain crops that might be a little bit thirstier to other crops that are maybe a little bit more, you know, drought resistant or use less water, or you can make kind of different decisions about where and when you decide to grow. Um, some places you can do groundwater banking. So during periods of surplus, you can try to fill those reservoirs back up um, and then kind of draw them down during deficits. You know, there's, there's lots of people can do. I mean, people have been dealing with droughts for a long time. Um, you know, it's just a matter of kind of valuing water in a way that actually water is valued instead of considering it to just be kind of like, you know, cheap and, and free. Thank you. Um, you've clearly done a huge amount of work on climate and on, on water and rainfall research as such. Um, I'm a history student. One of the things that I tend to be very aware of in the context of this sort of discussion is when you go back hundreds and then thousands of years, the human population has been relatively small today. But of course, you get to the 19th century and the process of industrialization, and the population growth just does that. So I, I'm just curious to know when we look over, say, the last century or so, has any work been done that would relate both the impact of climate change and the fact of dramatic increases in human population and their associated demands. Because I would suggest if you factor in the population consideration, then the threats that you're uh, discussing this evening are, are, relatively speaking, actually hugely more serious because of the level of human demand. Yeah, I mean, so there's actually been a lot of work more looking towards the future to kind of like look at both the kind of climate scenarios along with population scenarios to try to understand, you know, maybe in a region climate isn't changing that much, but if so many more people are piling in, you know, it can mean kind of increases in water stress. You know, and I mean, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but at least globally, 
you know, it seems to be climate seems to be the kind of dominant driver of, of water stress changes rather than increases in population and, and demand. Um, but for some regions, it's probably different than others. I mean, certainly in the, in the Western United States, you know, a lot of the development in that particular region has been, you know, post-World War II, which for much of it was a relatively wet period until the kind of recent decades. And, you know, now they're kind of dealing with the fact that the same drought that 50 years ago wasn't a big deal is now a much bigger deal and has a much bigger impact on the, on the reservoir storage and, and ability to meet demands. So certainly that's a, that's a big factor. But I think it's one of these things where you need to carefully consider it kind of regionally rather than kind of make kind of larger scale kind of things. Yeah, uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so I don't know specifically in this region, but certainly in the U.S. we've seen that. So if you over-pump the groundwater, you know, so ground, you know, groundwater is just stored in kind of air spaces like, you know, below the surface. And in a lot of cases, places in the western United States, uh, if you take that water out and it's out for an extended period of time, then you can get compaction and basically a loss of reservoir capacity. Um, there are parts of the Central Valley in California where the land over the 20th century has dropped in elevation by about 10 to 20 feet. And that's all through just compaction of the, of the, of the groundwater uh, aquifers. Uh, and the problem there is then that's lost capacity because then when it does rain again, instead of filling that up, it's gonna run off and, and you'll have to find a different way to capture it or, or use it. Um, as far as Syria goes, I, I don't know the specifics enough to say exactly what, 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 what the consequences are. Um, just before we, we, we finish, I'd like to um, extend my thanks to um, our own faculty and department for helping to support this um, UEA and also to CDRL for, for their support. Um, but most of all, thanks very much to, uh, to Ben for this fascinating talk. Oh, thank you. Thank you.